You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of After Impact. Today we are going hard on that Jamie Wheel cake. Uh, I had so much fun shooting this episode and I know that Agent Smith here is going to be doing what he does, taking this in a whole new direction. By the way, I hope you've seen, you've been getting like mad love in the comments. People love what you do on the show. So well Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Jamie Wheel. That was an awesome episode. Yeah. It was. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, he's one of those guests that uh, is multidisciplinary. So yeah. he talked about everything from brain chemistry. He was quoting Yates, which I really loved, and uh, all the way to current affairs and what's happening and, and how people can uh, make an impact on, on, their, on the world today. So mm. wide-ranging, love episodes like that. Um, I guess my first question is, because... I, I'm, I'm getting the sense that probably p- some people don't know who Jamie Will is or what mm. he's about, and some of his content and what he's talking about is, is a little heady. So why should people know who Jamie Will is, one, and what should people take away from that episode? Yeah, it's a great question. So Jamie Wheel, um, just uh, at a high level, he is the executive director of the Flow Genome Project, which is something that he co-founded uh, with um, Stephen Kotler, who's the author behind. He co-authored Bold and Abundance with Peter Diamandis, um, and then he wrote by himself a book called The Rise of Superman, which is probably the thing that made him most famous, but he's written a couple of other books. Um, and The Rise of Superman was really powerful and really introduced people to the this concept of flow, which people had heard about in maybe to a less um, academic uh, way in thinking about sports and the zone. And this Rise of Superman really showed that there's something a lot more going on that you see it a lot in extreme athletes. And the book sort of sums up by saying like, there's so much more research to do in terms of how to get into flow much more easily, what flow actually is. Like if you could map that brain state, what would that look like? And that's why it was called the Flow Genome Project. They were really trying to map it out what it looked like. And so Jamie Wheel was the man that Stephen Kotler turned to, to actually create that organization and, um, really reverse engineer the states, what they are, what they look like, what the patterns are, um, identify whether flow is different than psychedelic states, is different than meditative states, and you know where the synergies, the crossovers, and all that. And so they did a lot of research and went out and um, worked with you know some really big clients, and and that's really where Jamie shines. And um, his background is is very eclectic. And um, his father was British and a test pilot, and was basically the Brits version of a Top Gun mm. um, test pilot instructor. And then. His mom was like old school South African. Uh, He said she was merchant ivory old school. So like Mm. really regimented. But then he grew up from like the age of, I don't know, 12 or 13, grew up here in the States. So always felt a little bit like a stranger in a strange land, which gave him a really unique window into the world. Interesting. So what do you think 
to put this episode in context because it's so wide ranging, mm. what do you think people should take away? Maybe they haven't watched it yet, or maybe they've watched it and they're trying to digest all, the informa- all that information. What do you think is the main takeaway? From this the episode? main gist is that there exists a thing that they call non-ordinary states of consciousness. And it's interesting because it just came up. So we just filmed an episode with Chase Jarvis. If you guys know who that is, amazing. I really liked him. Like he is there something, people call him affable a lot. And I think that's super, super uh, apt description. He just welcomes you in and there's something innate to him about wanting to create and help people. And we were talking about how he had come to these major epiphanies in his life that led him to be one of the most revered photographers ever, certainly of our time. And he said it really was, he didn't use the word non-ordinary states of consciousness, but that's what he was saying, right? These big life things happen, they slap you out of your ordinary way of thinking, and then you're able to see things more clearly. And that's really what Jamie has dedicated his life to, and that's what I think is the main thrust of the episode, is um, there are... Uh, what they break down into three camps of non-ordinary states of consciousness, which are um, flow, meditative and mystical, and psychedelic. And those are like the what he calls the doors mm-hmm. that lead to this given destination, which is um, a, a profound, non-ordinary state of consciousness where you're able to see things afresh. And, ecstasis, and, right? Ecstasis, yeah. yeah, which is an ancient Greek word, which they use because basically ecstasy, which ecstasy actually does the job from a pure definition standpoint, which is the ability to step beyond yourself. Um, but it's been so co-opted by like drug culture yeah. that they knew, okay, we, we can't say ecstasy because people just think of the drug. Um, so how do we get to this concept of stepping beyond yourself and ecstasis uh, from ancient Greek is where they ended up. And so just, you know, the, the different ways to get to, um, to that ecstasis, to yeah. step beyond oneself and dissolve the ego and see things anew. Awesome. I want to uh, throw a quote out there from the episode. So Jamie says, we're drowning in information, but starving for motivation. Mm. What do you think that means? You know, it's interesting, especially given um, some of the debate from Mel, yeah. um, Mel Robbins, who, if you guys haven't seen that episode, went totally viral. And uh, her Facebook clip has had like 11 million views at last count. And, and the, the thumbnail of that is motivation is garbage. And I think people really like people want to argue rather than be enlightened. And that's one of those things that like it's such a counterproductive strategy. So looking beyond the words motivation is garbage to what she's really saying, I think, um, is purely that being prepared to actually act is going to be the problem. That's always where people fall down, right? So you might have like, you might feel raw, raw one moment, but then you get cold or you're tired or whatever. And then motivation leaves you and it's not there when you need it. And so she was talking about having these, um, other things to, you know, to, to be there for you. So, um, that I think is, he's talking about the, the actual willingness to act, but read me his exact quote again. We're drowning in information, but yeah. starving for motivation. So that same thing, right? Yeah. That that you you know what you should be doing, but when the moment comes, you just don't you don't move. And so I those two I think are saying the same thing. I think it's really a hot button thing for people. Um, uh, somebody else said it. I, I can't remember now who, but it was like if information was the problem, then we'd all be rich and have six pack abs. And that's actually true. And that's why my obsession is execution. Right? People need to focus on execution. Like you need to do things. Right. And when you talk to the highest level achievers in the world, they're all going to point to that that they do. Right. And one thing that I'm trying to really put words around, and I think that Jamie's quote sort of hints at here, is there's this breakdown in the moment where you allow yourself to dream big, which most people, even their biggest dream is small, but 
let's say you really allow yourself to dream big and then you start trying to execute against that, you're going to feel dumb, clumsy, incapable, incompetent. The voice inside your head is going to tell you that you are all those things and you're never going to achieve because there's this awkwardness whenever you're learning a new skill. And it really is like when I try to reverse engineer the success that I've had, it's the willingness to, to one, accept that that's a natural part of the process, that the, in the voice in my head will tell me, I'm not gonna be able to do this, you're not gonna be capable, you're gonna fall, you're gonna fail, uh, you're gonna embarrass yourself, you're gonna wish you never started, and that if I push through that and I keep doing it long enough, it will start at first to feel um, doable, and then it will feel easy, and then it will be, I'll truly be graceful at it, um, and then it will feel like truly secondhand, mm-hmm. um, second nature, excuse me. So that's, you know, just understanding that that's the process and being willing to fight through that, that deep discomfort to get there. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, essentially what Jamie's trying to capture with that quote. Yeah, Ira Glass calls that the taste gap. So it's identifying the thing that you want to be or become or be able to do that is so, um, so far beyond your skills right now. And most people can't get beyond the taste gap because it's so intimidating. Why does he call it a taste gap? Um, it's something to do with his notion of that, that um, we all start with like having tastes and saying that I like this or I want this. Hmm. And that is sort of what guides us toward the passion that we have or what we want to start developing in skills. But a lot of people fall down in the taste gap because you can't, right. they can't cross it. I'm with him on that. Um, all right, I want to give a quick shout out to Emmanuel Padilla, who has joined the live stream what is through a share from Dennis J. Santiago. Thanks nice. to both of you. Yeah, welcome. Um, Dennis is trying to bring Emmanuel into the fold here. Ah, one of us. One <laughs> of us. Awesome. So um, we have a question here from the feed from Dan Bro Fitness. Dan Bro in the house. What's up, dude? Always a pleasure to have you. And this is a really practical question. I find it incredibly hard to get into flow. I get distracted and lose focus very easy. What are your tips to dive deep into flow? So there's really two. One, you're probably in an environment rich rich with distraction. And so that's going to be the first thing to get yourself into a state. Like if I need to write, I'm going to try to shut out the world as much as possible. I don't want visual distractions. I don't want auditory distractions. So I'm going to go in a room, ideally by myself, sometimes in a dark room. Um, I'm going to put headphones on over ear and I'm going to play something like either film scores, which have no words or uh, white noise. And a lot of times what I choose is like the sound of a, a meadow or rain or, you know, something where what I find interesting is, is doing natural sounds instead of just like a, a you know, a, a fan or something yeah. like true white noise, yeah. which I do that when I sleep. Uh, but when I'm writing or something, I like more natural sounds because it, it, it makes my mind feel expansive because the auditory world that's being painted for me is expansive. Right. It's fascinating. I never would have thought that that'd be a thing, but that's the thing um, for me anyway. And then the other is stakes. And I find that if there aren't stakes involved, and I don't mean the edible kind, I mean like there's something at risk. There's something like I do my best work when I know that I'm running out of time to prepare for the episode. Mm. And that's when it's like, okay, I really click over. But then if you get too close to the end and I'm like really behind and I start feeling stressed, then I slip back out. So there's like this um, fine uh, zone where I'm close enough to being at a time that I'm really focused, I'm sharp, I'm in it, I'm going, 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 um, but I'm not so close and so far behind 
that I start to feel like really stressed out. So you've got to, you know, figure out a way to put some stakes to it, um, whether it's giving yourself a limited amount of time or, you know, I mean, this is not a great one, but um, the extreme athletes are known for this, that one of the reasons that they're so able to get into flow and that they're, you know, flow junkies is because a mess up in an extreme athletics can mean death or, or certainly permanent injury. So the stakes are so elevated that they really have to focus. And it, it ultimately it's that focus and you're dealing with something where your skill set is stretched, but adequate to the task. So if your skill set isn't pushed enough, if it's not like, woo, this is right at the edge of what I'm capable of, then it just, it doesn't demand enough of your attention to do it. And if it's too hard, then it's, um, you're getting negative feedback because you're not able to actually do it and that can pull you out of flow. So it's got to be right there in that sweet spot. Uh, but it takes practice. But I think the thing that, that it's focus and stakes, those are the two big ones. Yeah, the extreme sports one is interesting, and that's what the Rise of Superman is all about, right? Yeah. And you've read the book, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, have you ever utilized that channel, the sports? No. No. Extreme sports? Yeah. No, no, no. No, no. Or anything even close to that? Um, live events, like if I have to give a talk, okay. there's sort of social consequence. So if you'll let me count that, then yes. But um, God, I'm trying to think. Like, I don't really, I don't do things that are truly dangerous. Um, uh, my desire for something would have to be so strong for me to put myself in a truly dangerous situation. Um, so mm, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I've never jumped out of a plane. Yeah. I went skiing once. I hated it. Um, it's actually a lie. I went skiing twice. I hated it both times, <laughs> if that counts for anything. My poor count. father. He so tried to get me to do cool, like manly stuff, and I was just a total wuss. All right. Uh, we will jump into the next question here. So um, Jamie talks about how the food industry has, you know, figured out the equation for getting people super addicted to food. Yeah, buddy. Um, and, and really, that's in a larger segment all about brain chemistry manipulation and, and all of the, uh, the external stimulators that do that. So food, pornography, $4 trillion industry. Wanted to get your thoughts on that, especially in the context of having run and started a food company yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's, you know, jump right in. That, that was the premise behind Quest was food has this tremendous brain chemistry impact on people. And that's what you're up against. So our whole thing was don't try to change behavior. Try to leverage it. Mm -hmm. So I know that people eat for pleasure, not for sustenance. I know that they are actively trying to manipulate their brain chemistry. And I will tell you right now. So my life is so... Um, clean for lack of a better word like I don't cheat on my diet I don't do drugs um, I don't drink very often so it's like how do I keep how do I get the same excitement that everybody else gets from messing with my brain chemistry because humans animals like to mess with their brain chemistry they just love it and you can go on YouTube right now and search for like moose getting drunk and you'll see them like <laughs> eating fermented grapes or fermented apples and yeah. it's like they get drunk and they stumble around. Like, like animals just want to do that. And it, it is because the reward system in our brain is neurochemistry. And that's what makes sex exciting, food exciting, all that stuff, right? So if you can grab a hold of those levers, like you're going to do it. And dude, you're, I'm going to get way on a tangent here. So you're going to have to reel us back in in a minute. Okay. But let me fly into the wind for a second. They've done some incredibly interesting studies where you give a rat, like even a rat that's just recently had a pup, 
and you can um, you give it two levers. One releases food, and the other um, triggers because you can do this with cocaine or just with a direct stimulant to the dopamine um, centers of the brain, so that they get the the same thing. And it will sit there and press the coke or the dopamine releaser until it dies. It'll let its pup starve to death. It'll let itself starve to death because it is so pleasurable to mess with those levers. Like once you give people those levers, dude, oh, it's just bad news. But now if you you really, you want to get really interesting? Yeah. All right, let's get really interesting for a second. It no longer holds true if you put them in a rich environment where there's all kinds of cool stuff to do. So imagine for a second that I put you um, in the world as it is today and you've got a career and there's things you can chase and you've got Yates and you can read about Yates, write about Yates. I mean, like oddly similar to the world I am in today. Exactly. Which is why you're not a cokehead. Yeah. Uh, Or I then put you and I give you coke in this world. Right. So like, let's say right now there's a vial of coke. You wouldn't take it. I don't think. Right. And you could afford coke. So, yeah, you're not going to start doing coke and stuff. Um, But if I put you in solitary confinement for a month, two months, and there was a vial of Coke sitting next to you, you might be like, what else is there to do? Exactly. (laughs) And so that's where it gets really fascinating is when a rat is in an environment where it's got all these other options, they don't turn to the drugs like nearly as, I mean, I, I don't know the exact stats, but it was, if I remember right, it was dramatic. So that's something to take into consideration with all this stuff. It's we're, all the other things that you do are also to manipulate your brain chemistry, right? So writing, reading, movies, mm-hmm. like all of those things, mani- love manipulates your brain chemistry. Like you can measure, like if you let me hug my wife or even um, smell, oh God, the side of her neck in the morning because she hasn't had a shower yet smells like her, like as I identify her. I promise you there are like neurochemical fireworks going off in my brain because like that scent is so soothing and powerful to me. So all of it, it's brain chemistry. Like yeah. we just want to manipulate that stuff. All right. Um, I don't remember the initial question, so I have no concept of whether I answered it or not. We were talking about brain chemistry Thank manipulation you. and Perfect. food and pornography. And yeah. Oh, so I started at Quest. So yeah, that was we understood that we had to leverage that behavior. We wanted to use all of people's impulses to eat cookies, cakes, candy, pie, and say, we're going to make that cookies, cakes, candy, pie actually good for you. Uh, but that's why all of the flavors were like um, strawberry cheesecake mm. and chocolate chip cookie dough. It was like we wanted it to taste like and we wanted you thinking about all those foods that got you in trouble. And then we wanted to make them healthy for you. So I used to say, look, the food in- I don't think the food industry is sinister. I think that they just made small incremental steps along the path to giving you something that was really amazing. I mean, think about it back in the day. Like if you were, you know, Nabisco, Chips Ahoy, which I think is the same company, anybody making like junk food, right? You were probably giving it to your own kids and your own grandkids because it makes them happy. Right. You were eating some of it. It tastes good. It makes you happy. So I don't think it was, they didn't have ill intent. It just is like this slippery slope of when, when you are just trying to min- manipulate people's brain chemistry through the food with total disregard for what the long-term health consequences are, then you get yourself into a dicey situation. But as Quest, we were actually grateful that somebody had done all of that science. So we were able to take the science of taste, marry it to good nutrition, and create products that were you know, getting people, I mean, we had so many people, thousands of people write in with these dramatic transformations. So there's a winning formula to be had. It's just consumers have to push companies to go farther. Companies have to push themselves to go farther. And, you know, on the other side of that, with the right set of core values, 
you can do amazing things. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And that's really what this episode is about. It's about identifying all of the uh, uh, things that are manipulating us, all the addictions that are external to us that we're not aware of becoming aware of them, and then figuring out which levers to pull to actually manipulate them in your own benefit. And one of those levers that you talk about extensively in the episode is <laughs> drugs. So we yeah. have a question from uh, Roman from YouTube, actually. He said, "Yes, did this, Tom, did this show change your view on psychedelic drugs? And if yes, are you now open to the possibility of taking psychedelics one day? Yeah, I mean, he's, thank you, Roman, for couching all that language and really making it soft. Um, I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued, but I'm really just, uh, I'm super scared. And part of it is, like, if I really reflect, I like the self-narrative of I'm the guy that doesn't do drugs. Mm. Like, I like that. I like being able to say that. And I don't like the thought of not being able to, I don't want to be like, I don't do drugs, except psilocybin, MDMA, you know what I mean? It just, I don't know, that doesn't sound cool to me. Um, And that's a huge driver. I mean, that's just full disclosure. So um, not doing drugs is an important part of my self-narrative. But at the same time, I'm a learner and I don't get dogmatic. And so I'm the guy that can break free of things like that. So, you know, talking to Jamie is very, very intriguing. I got the chance to talk to him a lot off camera and really sort of understand what his... um, his motives are pure with that. Like he really just wants people to um, experience the 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 transcendent, and he means that very literally. Mm-hmm. That you know, to um, to really get perspective on something, you always have to step outside yourself. So uh, a baby goes through the terrible twos because they. Um, 
they aren't yet fully aware that there's them and there's somebody else, right? Somebody else to think about and develop theory of mind and understand how your actions impact them and all that. And as we develop, you know, we really begin to develop empathy and the ability to project. And then uh, he has this really eloquent like stair step that leads ultimately to, um, you know, there is only me when I can define myself as not you. There is only us when we can define ourselves as not them. There is only the U.S. when we are not, you know, whatever, another country. Right. And, and he says for us to really overcome the division that is so present here in the U.S., and between nations is to get a cosmological perspective, as he calls it, and to step outside. And he says astronauts get it because they see the Earth at a distance and the pale blue dot effect where it's just so obvious that fighting over imaginary lines um, when you're like this infinitesimally small thing on this tiny planet lost and, you know, just floating in space. Like it just doesn't make sense. The absurdity of it all comes crashing down on you. Mm. And so he says... Not everyone can be an astronaut, at least not yet. Give uh, you know Elon. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Richard Branson, Branson enough yeah. time, and I, I think that it will uh, become a thing. But it's not a thing yet. So to get that cosmological perspective, he said, you know, you really have a few options. You've got flow states, which can help. Uh, you've got meditative and mystical states, which can help. You've got near-death experiences, which he had some really interesting comments about how um, what is you know this incredibly traumatic event where people literally almost die, and but they come back feeling a communion with everyone. They feel more connected, more alive, that there's more beauty in their life, and it becomes this incredibly profound moment for them. What do you think's behind that? It, it, it is this thing that he's talking about. That, that like, Yeah, that cosmological or where the last one, which is a psychedelic experience. And I think that a near-death experience, if I had to guess, I haven't had one, nor have I had a psychedelic experience. So I'm, I'm coming at this purely from an academic angle, but from the descriptions, they sound very, very similar. So there's clearly something going on with the um, neurochemical flood that hits your brain during a near-death experience, during a psychedelic experience, where there's immediate and profound transformation of wiring and it seems to help most profoundly with traumatic stuff so a lot of the research being done around um uh ptsd uh war veterans that seem to really respond and very very rapidly from cycles of psilocybin and mdma uh, which is really, really fascinating. And I think, and now I'm way out over um, my head, and this is where I have to remind people that I'm not a neuroscientist, even though I play one on YouTube, essentially. Right. <laughs> um, but that what you're doing is, um, you know, really grabbing hold of that neurochemistry, marrying it to the malleability of memories. So in a chemical state where you don't trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, or sorry, the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, you're not triggering that because you have this massive release of serotonin um, and oxytocin. There's like a few other ones that Jamie mentioned. I don't remember the exact cocktail, um, but the things that make you feel really, really good in that moment, you extract your memory and the way memories work, when you pull it out of stored memory, it now becomes malleable and you can change it. Mm -hmm. And just by revisiting it in that chemical state where you can't feel agitated, angry, upset, in fact, you feel really good about it, you paint that memory with that neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. So you're like, wait a second, this thing that was totally traumatic for me, that was controlling my life and making me feel incredibly anxious, now as I think about it, it's wrapped in a feeling of, connection and beauty 
and calm. And so now when I put that memory back, it either gets stored as neutral, it's just robbed of its negative power, or I ha it has this transcendent quality of recognizing empathy for the abuser or recognizing empathy for the, you know, the situation of war or whatever the case may be that it now, it's not that you're like, oh my God, I loved it, but it has a neutral to um, cosmological perspective. And I think if, if it's able to that profoundly touch enough of those memories, because memories come in like all these little pieces. So if enough of them are, are pulled out, washed with that, and then put back, it seems to, from the studies, it seems to have a profound effect yeah. and lasting, by the way. Yeah, and he also talked about, you know, it's, it's a question of, you know, deciding which doorway to go through is a question of how risk averse you are, how much time you mm. have, how much money you have. And one of the things that constantly comes up on our show is meditation. And it's something you and Jamie talked about a lot. So talk about meditation. Obviously, you've spoken in depth about how important it is to you. But as just a thing that people can get started with immediately, I mean, something you can do right now if you want to. Yeah, so my experience with meditation is very much that it is... Um, it's very rudimentary compared to a near-death experience mm -hmm. or what I hear in people's description of a psychedelic state. So um, now when you talk to people who've been meditating for 30 years, they can actually get into a gamma wave state, which is um, known as the eureka moment, as Jamie mm -hmm. calls it in the episode. And we just lost our beautiful logo we behind did. us uh, and with nobody here to, to rescue us. Um, uh, so that is... Um, uh, uh, somebody better and more um, experienced with meditation would have to say like whether they've been able to get to that gamma state. But if you can really get to that gamma state through meditation, it, it should be really, really quite powerful. Um, I'm not using it for that. Like I'm not, I don't get to a place where I feel at one with the world or anything like that. I'm literally just calming my own nervous system. And so I'm able to think clearly the background radiation drops to zero, but I would not say that I walk away with some profound perspective. Mm. I have heard people describe it like that. Like even today, Chase um, Jarvis was talking a little bit more like that. Um, and I just, that hasn't yet been my experience. Give me another, you know, 20 years. And All maybe. right. We'll check back in. Yeah, please. Uh, one of the things that came up for me in this episode when you're talking so much about the brain, I mean, I've learned a lot about the brain through watching this show, but it's still kind of fuzzy for me and I haven't yeah. really um, jumped in and done the serious study. And so I have this question, but someone else in the comments also has a similar question. And it's really the first thing is like, what are, what are the starter books you recommend to start learning about the brain? Yeah. Um, what are some of the basic concepts that you need to understand? Or who are some of the people who... Um, we should follow and and check out their content to learn more. All right, so um, you're going to want David Eagleman, who wrote Incognito, and he gave an amazing TED Talk. Uh, we're actually, we don't have a date for him yet, but he's agreed to come on the show, so that would be cool. amazing. Uh, really, and I, I've had the very good fortune of spending an entire evening with him um, not too long ago, and just, oh my God, this guy, he's so passionate about the brain, like talking to him is so infectious, even if you never had an interest in the brain before that, like he's just one of those guys, and some of the stuff that he's working on with, um, he has a vest, and he could say, um, take an infrared camera and put it on your shoulder, and then the vest would create a signature that would press against you in a given pattern based on the signatures that you see. So I could blindfold you, 
And you'd be able to say, oh, that was Bonsai that just walked by. Oh, that was Lisa based on their heat signature. Because you would just over time, it would take time. Uh, okay. But over time, you would recognize, oh, that was Wookiee. That was Bonsai. That was Lisa. Oh, that's Tom Casey. You know what I mean? Like you'd really begin to recognize each individual person's mm -hmm. heat signature. Um, and, and they've done this with people where they can recognize blind people, can recognize right. faces through like patterns on their tongue or their back. Really, really fascinating. So David Eagleman is one. Um, V.S. Ramachandran is another, like, and he's been on the show, so watch his episode. Really, really fascinating. And I've learned more about the brain from V.S. Ramachandran than anyone else. Um, and people have asked me to spell things, so I know people don't know what I'm saying. I don't know how to spell Ramachandran. I literally would have I to write it down. I think I know how. R-A-M-A-C-H-A-N-D-R-A-N. I think you're right on the money. So there it is, everybody. I had to type it out a couple times. Very, so. very impressive. And uh, it's V as in Victor, S as in Sam. So VS, Ramachandran. I forget what the V and the S actually stand for. Um, and can I say that one of the great joys of my life was when he asked me to call him Rama? That's, a, yeah, that's awesome. I was that's like, a cool nickname too. A and B, like as a total fanboy, like when he was like, oh, call me Rama. I, it was something like, my friends call me Rama. I was like, yes, please. <laughs> You're like, does that include me? <laughs> so yeah, that was awesome. Those, those guys will smash it. Um, Moran Surf, if you guys haven't seen his episode, I think he's um, just one of the, the most entertaining people when it comes to the mind. So he's an amazing doorway. Every word out of his mouth is just fun and entertaining, and he's so good. Um, at what he's doing, but he hasn't, that I have read anyway, published sort of primers. Mm -hmm. So whereas um, V.S. Ramachandran and um, David Eagleman, like they'll get you started. And this is on my book list, guys. So if you go to impacttheory.com, um, and I think it's forward slash Tom dash reading dash list. Uh, it's forward slash again? reading list. It's reading dash reading list. Um, and you can see it. It's in the header now. So Perfect. easy access. Oh, nice. Yeah. Updated it. All right, great question here from Chris Berry uh, on Facebook Live. By the way, I know Chris Berry. Chris Berry's a machine. Like, this kid, like, he's a beast. A, he works really, really hard. Uh, B, like, he he was in, like, back in the day, was it, oh, God, he should put in the comments. He was in, like, M Madden or some one of the, like, main NFL 2K or something. Not NFL because he played at college, but whatever the college version of these games was. And he had, like, a pretty beastie rating. He was he's in, not in the game. He's in the game. He's one of the characters because he played uh, he collegiate collegiate oh. football. That's that's pretty legit. That's awesome. Yeah. No, he's not. If if you met him, you'd be like, oh yeah, you're you're a wall of a human being. I get how you were <laughs> uh, playing at that level. Yeah. Uh, this question is from Chris Berry. With all the adventure athletes and drugs and elite warriors mentioned in the discussion, it seems like a masculine thing. What is a more feminine expression of getting into flow? Wow. That's a good question. That's a great question. Uh, so interesting because Chase Jarvis on the show today said, I think what the world needs right now is more feminine energy. Yep. Which is pretty fascinating. And we're making a big play into that. Lisa is about to do her own podcast. Uh, the team here is obsessed with getting amazing, amazing female uh, people on the female people, women onto the show, also known as That's true. Uh, women onto the show. We've got some cool episodes we've already shot that are coming out. Uh, so what's a more female? Uh, I'm not the right person to answer that. I would, I would give you a bunch of BS. I wish that there were a woman with us right now that could really answer that question. I don't have the insight that you're looking for, but that question is amazing. You'll have to ask it with the next guest who comes yeah. on who can answer that yeah. appropriately. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, he said NCAA 2004. There it is. There it is. My man. 
Okay. Um, let's talk about. Okay. So one thing, actually, let's take let's let's take a pause and say we're on Facebook Live doing After Impact. Great we're point. talking about the episode with Jamie Wheel that aired on Tuesday. Um, it's outstanding. We're going deep into it. Ask your questions here if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, go check it out on YouTube or the podcast Impact Theory. Yeah, and if you want to know what my brain looks like turned inside out, that I had so much fun with this episode. I really, really enjoyed being on set. And what I liked about it was I wasn't trying to think of the next question. Like I was just having a conversation with him. And I know that I get that comment a lot where people say, oh my gosh, like you're just having a conversation. But like half of my brain is allocated towards like, okay, where do we take this? And it's very intentional. But with Jamie, man, I was just, I'm so intrigued by how his mind works. Um, I was having a ball. Yeah, it was a great episode. So if you're watching this, um, we are giving away an Impact Theory t-shirt if you share the live feed. And also, I'd like to give an, another t-shirt away and just have a kind of a survey question for the audience here. I want to know what your favorite piece of content is. So let's, let's set Impact Theory, the show, aside, since that's kind of our main show. But all the other pieces we're doing, we're doing impact quotes, books, book reviews, uh, after impact. Uh, what am I missing? Startup theory, the new one. Drop it in the comments. We want to hear from you. Yeah, that really, really helps us. We've recently made a change, in fact, on um, both our book review and impact quotes. Uh, so be eager to see if you guys like the changes or not. Definitely. Also, don't forget about red pill theory. Yeah, which uh, is going to be rebranded. So we're working now with um, our... Our mates, I don't know what other word to say it, at Vayner Talent, dude, so, so stoked to be working with those guys. They're absolutely people. incredible. Just got off the phone with them right before coming on here. Uh, so that's under a rebrand. Can't wait to relaunch. I won't tell you the name now, uh, but you guys will see when we relaunch. That's right. Stay tuned. All right. So this episode not only goes deep into brain chemistry, but then gets very profound, especially at the end. So if you're watching this and you watched the first part of the episode but didn't wait till the end, you need to watch the end of the yeah, episode. Yeah, watch the end, watch the end. It's so good. And Jamie really starts to put things into context about why it's so important that we are having these profound altered states of consciousness to get perspective on our lives and get perspective on the world. Um, I want to read a quote. So he says, we have the ability through ecstasis to step beyond ourselves, to have these experiences that expand our perspective, to have these experiences where we just get out of our own way. And we see, man, we are connected to each other. We see that love, beauty, truth are worth taking stances for. Yeah. Just let that, let that sink in for a second. That's a great quote. And he gave me the chills when, you know, we were on set and talking. And at one point, I don't remember if, if that was it, but at one point he he got like quite emotional. And I remember during the interview, I'm like, is is he getting emotional? Like I wasn't, I honestly wasn't sure. And now knowing, because afterwards he was like, whoa, like I was totally taken by surprise by that. I thought, damn it, I should have asked, like, what is it about this that's making you so like so raw? And I think for him, it's really believing that the stuff that he's studying could actually have an impact on bringing people together. And his like one of his life's mission is to bring people back together and that he sees the division, the ideological division that's growing in society is just totally a it's fake. 
right? So all the things you think that are pulling you in part, just none of it's really real. Mm. And that if you can step outside of yourself, ecstasis, get that moment where you transcend your own ego, then all of that other unity and things like becomes self-evident. And I don't know, especially I think maybe as a parent for him, it was pretty powerful to think like that that world is just close enough to being in our grasp um, and that it's worth fighting for. Yeah, and what he says also is that today there's an acceleration of mythologies crashing into one another. Mm. And I wanted to get your thought on that since you're a big believer in mythology. Like, do you see that happening today? Yeah, I, I in, a, in a terrifying way. And so... I think you have two problems. I think you have mythology is losing its steam mm. and you have ideology colliding. And that maybe is is scarier for a couple reasons. There's usually like some pretty profound life lessons that are contained in myth. And when you understand the narrative, you understand the story and you believe in the story, then things get you can really encapsulate some incredibly powerful ideas. When things break down and they become pure ideology, it becomes binary, it becomes black and white. It loses all of the subtlety that narrative is able to carry. And so that to me is one of the dangers of not understanding how to use narrative, how to use mythology in story form to transmit ideas. Because once you're not using the narrative uh, form factor to transmit the ideas, all you're left with are speeches and essays and rhetoric. And when it gets broken down to rhetoric, like there's a really great nerd writer episode on how Trump uses language. And I don't need you to, to like or dislike Trump, but just looking at the way that he uses language and how it, it narrows the scope and now it narrows it very effectively. And that's one of the ways that he's gotten where he's gotten is understanding how to use language very, very effectively to cut through the clutter, to very immediately go right after the amygdala in somebody's mind. Um, and that to me, that's where, um, without narrative, without the subtlety of empathy that can come through in a story where you're connecting to characters versus, um, dry, binary, black, white, yes, no ideology. Great. That's awesome. Um, Question from Ian Pettit. Sounds. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, He says, do you think the reframing of traumatic experiences via MDMA therapy is related to the research cited in the Moran surf episode? We may need some... I'd, I'd have to go back and watch it. Uh, yeah. I don't remember the specific research in that well enough to, to yeah. answer. Okay. I'm sorry, man. Well, if you have some clarification, like Ian, we'll get back to you on that. Um, another quote that stood out to you, I know that had a big impact during the episode, was, uh, was the best lack all conviction mm. while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Yeah. So I'll say it another way. It's, a, it's a, such a beautiful quote, but it's one that I think can skim across people's minds. Um, said another way, the, the people with the best intentions are unsure of themselves. And the people that don't necessarily have the best intentions, um, they are convinced they're right. And that's what always, that's what gets scary, man. Mm-hmm. So you meet like, there's a great quote I don't remember if it was said by a scientist, but it so applies to science that that we'll just say it was said by a scientist. Okay. Uh, the less you know, the more certain you are. The more you know, the less certain you are. Mm. And that is so true. Like, think about how many 16, 18, 20-year-olds think they know everything. 
You meet a 40-year-old, they've had their ass handed to them so many times, they just don't feel like that anymore. Like, you know, like, the more you begin to master a topic, the bigger the topic seems to get. Like, when you Mm -hmm. first start, like, if 10,000 hours is sort of the baseline for uh, the beginning of mastery, if you will, at hour one, what you're trying to master seems like this. At hour 10,000, it's like, the scope of it has changed so much and you realize you begin to realize the how subtle little nuances make a world of difference and learning to understand that like in music they say it's not the notes that's important it's the space between the notes but you don't know that on day 1 right? right so like the way that people conceive of the very universe of things that they're trying to do will change the better you get at it so when people are lost in aggression, when they're ignorant from the the standpoint, not of like willful ignorance, they just don't have all the facts. Like that's when you're at your most convinced because you think you know. The world seems small, everything seems very clear, you know exactly what needs to be done, boom, let's go do it. But when somebody really knows, when they really understand the complexities, that's when they're more trepidatious because they, they, they have become hyper aware of the things that they don't know. Right. And so, yeah, it gets scary, man. All right, another question from Roman. He says, I've been studying psychology and understanding certain patterns patterns that drive your brain. Uh, I've been pretty successful at breaking old negative habit, pa- habit patterns. However, I've found myself not yet being able to replace those old habits with positive new ones. What is your advice on creating new empowering habits? Yeah, so um, habit cycles are... are pretty straightforward. So my advice is read um, Hooked by Nir Eyal. I think that's a great place to start. Um, And his name is spelled N-I-R, separate word, E-Y-A-L. And yeah, his book really breaks down how to form habits, how to break habits, what habit loops are, what habit triggers are. Um, And there's stages of a habit. And so the simple one is you're going to, one, decide what is the habit that I'm trying to get into. Two, what's going to be the thing that triggers that. Um, So I'll give you an easy one for me going to the gym. The thing that triggers my habit loop uh, around that is waking up. So the very act of waking up, I then put my gym clothes on. Like my gym clothes are the only clothes that I set out for myself. So it's like, I don't even have an option. So I get out of bed. There are clothes right there. They are gym clothes. I put on gym clothes. I go immediately to said gym. I work out. So now it's like, I've got that. The the trigger of waking up is the trigger to go into the gym. Um, Complimenting people. Uh, I use the, I I felt, and this really started with my wife. I felt that I was... um, I was articulating my criticisms, and even though they paled in comparison to the things I felt about her were just amazing beyond all measure, I didn't articulate them. So she would do something sweet, and I would be like, oh, thank you so much. But I wouldn't be like, oh my God, like this is so amazing, thank you, I really can't believe that you did that, and it's so thoughtful, like really going on the extreme. Or she'd walk by and she looked really good, and I would just think, wow, she looks great today. But I wouldn't externalize it. Mm. So, but then if... Um, you know, whatever, something stupid happened. She, um, God, what is something that my wife does? My wife, she cleans everything. It's hard to find something to complain about my wife, but whatever. She, uh, God, I'm trying to even make something up. <laughs> she does something anyway that triggers me to say like, hey, don't do that. And I would think, God, that I think to say out loud, like that's so crazy. So I started saying the, the criticism itself needs to be a trigger to compliment. 
So if I thought, hey, don't put that there. Oh, here's a perfect one. I hate it when she tidies um, like my keys, my wallet. Like I always put them in the same place. So don't move them. So and she would move them. So I would think, A, <laughs> don't move my stuff. But instead of saying that, I'll say, you know what? I actually really, really appreciate the fact that you keep the house tidy and it's amazing. Like otherwise, if it were left to my devices, this place would be a mess. And so using that impulse at first, which was a criticism to, to force me to focus on the compliment that so that you get what you focus on. So now I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking, yeah, like, wow, she really does this amazing job. So finding that hook that'll lead into the habit loop. But do you still try to provide something constructive with that or is it just go into the opposite compliment? Oh, um, nine times out of 10, it's literally just go into the compliment because if the criticism is important enough, it'll still be there for me when I'm done with the compliment. But usually the criticism is so minor that it's not worth even bringing up. Like I know why she's tidying up my stuff, right? There's people coming, whatever. Right. So rather than complain about it, just say, hey, what, what's our compromise, right? So you don't want it left out. Awesome. I need it in the same place every time. So is it, if I put it in this drawer, can we agree that you'll leave it, right? Rather than just pissing and moaning about it being moved. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. I think that, oh, we have, we have explanation from Ian if we want to go into that. Yeah, let's get it. So he says, Moran Surf explained that you can change your experience through revising memories by repeating them to yourself in a different way, such That's as right. through therapy sessions similar to Daniel Gilbert's so-called filling in trick. I think that by calling up memories while in the positive and loving state of ecstasis, you infuse those memories with that emotional state. Yeah, 100%. They're, they are absolutely talking about the same thing. And this is, um, this is a, a really, really powerful trick that I think more people should figure out because your, your memories are a construct. Your memories are, um, they're not real. They're yeah. not real. And I know that that is somewhat controversial, but man, so many studies have been done on this. The way that people, A, you can, you can actually get people to confess to crimes that they didn't do by planting the memories in their minds. I mean, there's really famous cases where people go to jail for like 20 years because they've had information planted. There was just one I was reading about in, um, in fact, I think it's the book that I'm reading right now where uh, they talk about how this guy ends up going to jail for like, I don't know, however many years. And when the police chief or whoever was involved in the case dies, they then go through all of his files and realize that he actually had information that exonerated, like 100% exonerated the person and he buried it. And so they know he was innocent and yet he went to jail on a signed confession that they got from him the night that it happened and they convinced him that he really had killed his mom. And so you like, it's just crazy. So you have to be aware of how malleable your memories are, but that can work to your advantage. So if there's something that um, like really bothered, I'll give you a real one from my life. Um, so it was like really, really important to my wife and myself that I not see her in her dress on the wedding day before she starts walking down the aisle. So I knew she's gathering like at the back of the church and all that. And so I am facing forward and it's in i'm used to the way that they do it in america where because this is in not only london but it was in a greek church in london so here it's like dun, 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 right and yeah. so ah you hear everybody stand up the music yep. starts playing you know the bride's coming turn around see so her coming down the aisle 
Now, it wasn't like that. Nobody said anything. All of a sudden, my mom, who knows why I'm facing away, goes, she's almost here. And so I'm like, say what? I turn around, and my wife's like already two-thirds of the way up the aisle. I was heartbroken that I didn't see her walk the first two-thirds. And literally in that moment, I was like, you cannot focus on anything negative. Yeah. Like, you have got to like be in the moment. Like, don't even think about it. Don't worry about it. Enjoy that you got to see her come, the last third. It's amazing. Yay, this is your wedding day. And then after that, I said, I'm going to watch the video of her walking down the aisle, and I'm going to put that in my mind as, like, I saw her coming down the aisle. And that literally, over time, like, now I can picture her walking down the aisle, even though I didn't actually see it. Whoa. So, like, you, you have to understand. Like, this is my obsession with the brain. You have to understand how the brain works. Have to. Have to, have to, have to. Awesome. All right. I think we should wrap it up there unless there's anything else you want to touch on from this. Episode. No, man. I just really want people to watch this one. Watch this one. And yeah, I'm, and call yourself out in the comments. Like if you really respond to the way that Jamie's mind works, like I just want to hear like he's so like there's something about him I so enjoyed. Uh, I'm just curious to see like what other people really respond to him in the way that I did. Um, and man, since I'm too big of a chicken to uh, do drugs, if anybody else has had uh, the experience of ecstasis uh, through psychedelic means or otherwise, uh, would love to hear about that as well. Let me live vicariously through you guys. Uh, would be amazing. Definitely. And we're going to be putting out a number of different clips around this episode on Facebook and some of our other platforms. So if you really like this episode and you want to share those and send them to other people, I know I realize it's sometimes hard to get people to sit down for an entire hour long episode. Mm -hmm. But if you share one of these two, three minute, five minute clips where it's really succinct, some of the, the key points from that episode, um, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, that would be amazing. And Please help support my boys, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler, by the book, Stealing Fire. It's great. It is a really fascinating take on what ecstasis is, how to get into the state. Uh, it isn't drug heavy. They mention it as one of the possible ways, uh, but they take a really um, clean clinical look at how all this stuff is happening, the cutting edge of the brain research, where it's at. We didn't even get a chance to talk about um, uh, magnetic... Um, Transcranial, Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Thank you, dude. Um, I was really struggling with that one. So there's all kinds of really, really interesting things happening at the forefront of brain science. So check it out. They go into it in the book. The book is really a great read, and they are great writers. So it's just fun to read. Stealing Fire, it is out now. Go check it out. You guys are going to love this one. Thank you so much for joining us today. I absolutely, absolutely love filming these After Impacts. We thank you guys so much for showing up, especially in the live audience. Thank you guys for that, for asking your questions. Really appreciate it. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Bye. Peace. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.